For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Dirt Talk. I'm your host, Aaron Witt, on Dirt Talk. And today we're interviewing, I'm interviewing, it's just me, interviewing Garrett Moss of Moss Utilities. He's the president of Moss Utilities in Dallas-Fort Worth. They're a utilities company. They, they just do utilities work, public and private. He's been going for two or three years now. We're going to talk about how he got the business started, his his family history since he's fifth generation, and, and get into all kinds of realities behind running the business since he's been learning a lot of lessons over the past year or so that I'm, I'm really excited to talk about even before times got a little weird with coronavirus. Thanks for coming on the show, Garrett. Yeah, Aaron, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Excited to be here and talk with you guys. You have a pretty crazy family history because you're in this industry, you get a lot of, yeah, my dad was in it or even my grandpa was in it. You know, you have two, three generations, your fifth generation. I mean, your whole family has essentially been in the utilities world. Is that correct? Yeah. Going back on my dad's side, I mean, my grandpa worked in it and my dad and uncle both worked in the same company as him in the eighties. And then, you know, his grandpa and his dad all work for the same company, a company called Column Construction. They've been around for almost 100 years here in DFW, and they're still around. That's how it all got started and just a long family history of being in this business. So when you were growing up, and I know, you know, they were working for Column, and then your dad and, and uncle went and started their own company. I mean, you pretty much grew up around utilities your, your whole childhood, right? Yeah, so I was born in, in uh, 87, and, and Moss Construction didn't get started until about 89. My dad started it just doing manholes and kind of side work, and then eventually my uncle came over with him, and then my grandpa a little bit later, and they all had a lot of growth doing utilities in the 90s. I mean, they, the company went from just them being pretty small to having a lot of success. They all did it together. How big were they at their peak? How many people? Uh, I think at one point my dad told me they had – Almost 200 employees at one point. Holy smokes. So they, got, they got pretty big. I think they, I don't remember what the revenue figures were, but they had a lot of success. They did really well. My, they mainly focused on subdivision infrastructure projects, you know, public work, and then multifamily projects. So a little bit different mix than we do today. You know, it was really good for my family, really good business to be in. You know, I grew up going to the office, hanging out with everybody that worked there. I mean, it was a big family atmosphere, really close with the kids of other employees of Mock Construction. So, you know, in high school, I did an internship at the office, but I kind of grew up being a kind of a nerdy fat kid that wasn't really interested in doing it for, for work. I kind of grew up playing computer games and doing some other stuff. So I didn't really get interested in the family business. Didn't, you know, I kind of thought my dad would let me take over the company one day. You know, that was kind of where I thought it was going. So in college, I kind of didn't really know what to major in. You know, I started off in civil engineering. Ended up switching majors three or four times, really just focused on having too much fun, to be honest. And, you know, I thought maybe I'd get into the family business. And then 2008 happened while I was in the middle of college. And that was a real wake-up call because their company ended up going out of business at the end of 2008 for a lot of reasons. But that kind of put a sour taste in my mouth with, with the industry. You know, it was, really, it was a really tough time for my family and I. You know, I tried to finish up school and took my sweet time doing so and then you know, try to do some other things. And then one day I, you know, ended up coming back to it. I guess, you know, you go from a very successful utilities company, 200 employees doing subdivision work to having to close the doors. What kind of mistakes did they make that 
led to that? Because I'm sure you've thought about it a whole lot now that you started your own company, trying to avoid the mistakes they made. What what were the errors that they, they had made during the good times that caught up with them in 2008? You know, there's been... There's been a lot of talk about that and exactly what went down. And, you know, it kind of depends on who you talk to, different situations. Business with family is really tough. You know, there's there's personal family relationships involved. It gets complicated. Yeah. And then there's, when you have a lot of success, you tend to make some decisions. You, you spend some money that, you know, you think you're just always going to have that, that income coming in. And the market's not always going to be great. It's not always going to be blowing and going. There's not always going to be excess money around bad spending decisions. And this is all stuff that, you know, I've just heard over the years because I wasn't involved, but just some bad spending decisions, some overall just bad stuff happened, you know, a multitude of all that happening right when the housing market in 2008 just shut off pretty much overnight. You throw in a company that's having struggles already and then all of their work drying up, it just made a perfect storm. And it's kind of crazy too, because we're seeing that again right now. And I guess it's a good lesson, especially I'm actually... I wouldn't say I'm enjoying watching what's happening right now, but the past few weeks have been a good reminder for me because, I mean, in my adult life, everything has just always been really good economy-wise. Everyone was making a ton of money. Life was good. The sun was shining. And now there's this huge storm looming over the, the whole country and the world right now, reminding everyone that, hey, it's not always good. So you need to prepare for when things aren't good. So I guess that's it's kind of a similar lesson there. Yeah, I look at it like it's, it's forcing us to grow up a little bit. I mean, I'm with you. We got in business in late 2016, and the market's just been, been crazy. There's been a lot of opportunity to enter the market. We were very blessed to be entering a good market because it enabled us to pick up work. And we've made a lot of decisions growing as fast as we have based on the market being really good. And you could take all the lessons that I saw my, my family's business go through, and some of them... You know, it's kind of those mistakes you have to learn the hard way sometimes. Um, there's some stuff I wish I could have done differently and learned from them already. And there's some ways that, I, you know, seeing what they went through has taught me a lot and we're, we're doing really well. So, but yeah, I think we always need to be thinking about getting through slower times, getting through tough times. How do you put money away to save for a rainy day? Yeah. So going back to college, you graduated college and you graduated with a degree. It wasn't, you started civil, but what did you end up with? Like, it was like economics. Yeah, I was graduating an economics degree from UT uh, yeah. after being in civil engineering for a couple of years. And then, you know, I tried to business school for a little bit. And the, the economics degree ended up being a liberal arts school there. But just kind of just wanted to, by the end of it, just wanted to get a degree and get out of there. Well, I mean, how do you go from, from college? And, and I know, you know, so you got your economics degree and then you jumped into, it was like manufacturing, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And then, but only a few years later, you found yourself back in utilities. How did you get back into construction and why man that's actually a pretty cool story so out of college i went to work for a company called brinkman they manufacture barbecue grills and they're kind of out of business now but just took any job i can get 2012 the job market was still pretty tough i didn't really have a lot of direction on where i wanted to go and i looked around in the construction stuff a little bit but not everybody was really hiring there kind of just took whatever job i could get and then eventually I got an opportunity to go work for a mechanical contractor that did big custom houses, did their air conditioning systems for them. It was pretty interesting. And one day that, that company was going along well. I'm working there was fine. I, I met my wife while I worked there, not at work, but during that time. And then one day I got a call from a guy who was a rec recruiter, you know, reached out to me from LinkedIn and saw that on my LinkedIn that I had some experience in utilities and he had this company that was looking for like an assistant project manager. And he gave me the, the spiel and did that. And I thought, man, this would be pretty cool to get back into utilities. And in the back of my head, you know, college and growing up, I've always had it in my mind that I wanted to be an entrepreneur somehow. You yeah. know, I've always thought that I wanted to own my own business doing something. Cause I, I just saw what it did for my dad, for my uncle, for our family, you know, saw a lot of what came with it. And, and just in the back of my head, I'm always asking myself, how could I use this to start my own company one day? And then I got to thinking that, you know, if I really wanted to start my own company one day, doing it in utilities where I have some resources there, family members to help out, some people to give me advice, that probably is the best way to do it. So that was my thought process then. And I took the job and the recruiter got me the job and it was for a, one of our biggest competitors now. And I worked there for a year and a half or so and ended up moving to a different competitor, worked there for a little bit longer. And before you know it, I met Case, my partner in Moss Utilities and 
we sat and looked at each other one day and said, hey, why couldn't we do this ourselves? And so that kind of started it all. Yeah. Yeah. How hard can it be? <laughs> and which is what I thought before I started a business. Right. But, you know, why did you guys even get to that conclusion? Like, hey, you know, working where we're at right now, is it's just not long term. I think we're better off jumping ship and, and creating our own. Why did you have that kind of thought process? A lot of it goes back to what I said about always wanting to start my own business. You know, I just always had that in the back of my mind, looking around. I was a project manager at this company. Case was a superintendent. We were doing a lot of projects together, really getting along well. Stuff was going pretty well. And I don't know why. I mean, I was 29 at the time, maybe 28. You know, just in the back of my mind, I just always wanted to start it on my own. And I thought I thought it would be easy. And I, and I didn't realize how hard it would be. And yeah. I ended up borrowing some money from, from my family members and starting a company on with LegalZoom. You know, and Case and I started working out of my upstairs bedroom. I mean, we had no idea what we're getting ourselves into. No idea. I had no idea how to run a business. No idea what cash flow was. No idea about anything other than I would figure it out. Just had that mentality that, hey, let's just do it. And that was before I had any kids. Case already had one. But, you know, it just my wife originally said, hey, I don't, maybe you should wait a little bit. You don't really have a whole lot of experience. You know, I'd only been working back in utilities for three or four years. So I didn't have a ton of experience. Yeah. really didn't know what I was doing, you know, and to this day, I still don't think I know what I'm doing, but I've, I've definitely learned a lot in the last three and a half years. So to start the company, you had to go get capital. So you did that primarily through family members and did your dad help out at all? Or was, were you pretty much on your own? No, my dad was working for somebody else at the time. And I'd originally tossed around getting involved with, with working with my dad. And one thing I've learned over the years is just working with family is tough. It, yeah. it puts a tough dynamic on the workplace. It, it makes it difficult. And I, and I care about my dad and love him a lot. And we'd rather us have a good personal relationship than, than worry about business. So Case and I decided to, to do it on our own. And, you know, we wanted to use the Moss name because everybody had, had told me that the reputation was still strong. And, and immediately when we got started, people already recognized, oh, Moss. And they just immediately assumed we'd been around a while because they'd heard the name Moss before. Mm. So that helped us appear you know, more established than we were. And we were bidding a lot of commercial work to get started, you know, small commercial projects. A lot of these GCs and, and builders we were bidding to didn't really do any subdivision work back in the day. So some of them had never heard of us, but they were just such a need for another quality utility contractor in the market that we were able to get business being the new guys. And I think a lot of that was just our ability to, to go knock on doors. I mean, we were, we were out there hustling every day. And originally, you know, I was bidding all the projects Never been an estimator before, so, you know, you can imagine how that went. Yeah. Case was running our, our crews, and our first employee besides Case was a young man named Parker who had started as a labor hand on Case's crew four or five years before that. And today, Parker is our general superintendent at Moss Utilities, so he's been phenomenal and grown from the ground up, and we've watched him come up and learn and mature right in front of us, and it's been amazing to see. And so he, he's only one example of the of the people we've done that with, people that who just come in and kind of brand new to the industry with us and just learned. And, and we're really teaching them everything we can and, you know, going from there. Why was there such a need for a utilities contractor in the market? Man, I think, you know, we've got some really, really good competitors out there. There's yeah. some that do a really great job. They've been around a long time. And then there's there's some out there that don't, take care of business they don't they're they're not good people they don't do a good job for their customers there's a lot of work in in the marketplace and a lot of people are having to settle for some bad utility contractors Mm. and you know we've kind of switched our market focus a few times after doing uh, small commercial stuff to get started i made the mistake of thinking we could jump into subdivision work and you can ask case to tell you about that because he never lets me forget it but we we just got (laughs) our butt painted to us with subdivision work over the <laughs> over a couple of years because we just we didn't know how to do it to, to be profitable at it and we uh-huh. really struggled we were doing a lot of multifamily work you know dallas fort worth has the second hottest uh, multifamily market in the country in the last couple of years really there's been a lot of multifamily projects and and, and you think pipe is pipe and it all goes in the same but the commercial multifamily and subdivision and public works projects all go in differently there's all different niches in between they all require different skill sets, and it's tough to be good at all of them. And I was kind of arrogant thinking we could be good at all of them, and it's just, it's just almost impossible. What were the first few jobs like? I mean, did you guys make money at first, or what? I mean, what was that first few months actually like? 
so getting started, we got started on a, a little SBA loan with some capital from small bank. And first couple of projects, I mean, we just ran out of my upstairs bedroom. Our first job was a $35,000 fire line, 100 feet fire line in a, in a vault and connecting to a main. And it was for a general contractor, a really small one. It was actually for their office building in Louisville. Parker and his brother were our two employees. We put that job in with two guys. And then our second job, I think, was a four-building office park in Frisco. I can tell you we did not make money on that one. It may have appeared we made money at first, but we ended up having to come back and come back and come back, and it just was a nightmare. So we learned a couple hard lessons right up front. and Eventually, you know, in early 2017, we started to get some bigger subdivision projects, some multifamily projects, and my projections, if you go, I, I always laugh because I go back and look at the projections I gave the bank. I gave them three-year projections when we got started. And, you know, it was like $4 million the first year, $6 million the second year, $8 million the next year. Yeah. And then in 2017, we ended up doing $22 million. And I thought no idea why or how we did that. A lot of it was just hustling on the sales side and then taking the job. If people wanted us to do it, we said yes. And, and if we couldn't get there, we added another crew and bought another truck. And it kind of amazed me how people would extend us credit when we probably didn't deserve it. And a lot of favors were done and, and people really got behind us and wanted to see us grow and succeed. So what is selling a utility job? I mean, how it's not like they just fill out a form on your website and say, Hey, can you come put our pipe in the ground? You know, we're a municipality, a city, we need a new water line. How do you chase this work in the first place? Man, to be honest, I had a lot of luck using social media. Really? I've been very active on LinkedIn ever since we got started. I think LinkedIn's a huge tool that, Searching for every apartment builder in town, for every subdivision developer, word of mouth, calling, sending emails, messaging them on LinkedIn, getting on the Blue Book and bid invites would get on there. We were just hustling on the sales side. Case and I would go knock on doors and show up at offices uninvited or take people to lunch and really just try to sell ourselves. And I think people got behind us because they felt like we were genuine. We, We cared. We didn't always deliver a perfect project getting started you know but yeah. we, we cared when stuff went wrong we made it right we showed them that we wanted their project to be successful i think if people feel that about you and know that you want to be that you don't only care about yourself you don't only care about your company's profitability you care about the whole project i think people can sense that and they, and they try to help out the underdog and try to help out the new guy i mean you're proof of that because you guys grew so fast but it's counterintuitive to sit there and be like well i care about my clients' profits more than I care about my own. But if you genuinely believe that and genuinely act on that, your client makes more money, you make them more successful, and then right behind them, you make more money. I mean, a lot of businesses just can't see past their own bottom line and don't really care about you know their vendors and their people and their clients. It, they just care about themselves. But if you care about everyone else, you end up making more money. I mean, it's a win-win proposition. Yeah, it, it is. And that's how it should work, you know, in an in a ideal environment. There's, and if you have customers that understand that, the, the trick is finding out which customers do and which ones don't. Yeah. And we've had to work for a lot of bad customers. And we've, had to, we've got some really, really good ones that we do a lot of work for that, that understand it, that we're true partners, that it's not about trying to stick it to them on the next change order to make the most money. It's a it's a long-term investment in, in their projects and their success, getting to know their team. You know, a lot of the value we try to bring is up front on the pre-construction side, you know, letting them know what problems we foresee ahead of time, letting them know design issues. You know, a lot of companies will bid a job and know there's a design issue and bid the job cheap because they know they're going to be able to get a massive change order out of the deal. Mm. You know, stuff like that doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you not go in saving that owner a lot of money and time with presenting some solutions. And, and honestly, some customers don't care. At the end of the day, they're going to take a low bidder and that's on them. Their business is going to speak for itself. If they're, if they're the low bid guys all the time, then that's, you know, over the long term, that's not a winning solution, you know? So we're trying to present ourselves as being better than the low bidder, uh, providing more value than just a number on, in a spreadsheet that gets tabbed up against 10 other bidders. So what? You know, if that's the guys that, that they're looking for, that's not us. Yeah, and I mean, DFW is arguably one of the most, probably top three most competitive markets in the United States in the industry because there's there's a lot of people. I mean, 10, 15 bidders on a single project is pretty regular, at least when I was out there working. What's the difference? What makes a good customer versus what makes a bad customer? What's the, what's the difference between those two? 
there's lots of competition right now. That's one of the toughest parts about DFW is that most of the subs around will tell you that their margins aren't going up. Yeah. Their margins aren't aren't at the level where the amount of work would dictate. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of the subs that aren't that don't bid with any type of market responsibility. They don't. They just care about getting the cheapest job in that they can, and they don't care about quality. And unfortunately, being a utilities contractor, a lot of people view us as just a commodity. They think that that pipe is pipe. You know, us and our competitors all buy roughly the same material. We all use the same types of equipment. So you have to differentiate yourself with, you know, efficiency, quality, the people. That's how you have to separate yourself. And when people are just tabbing you on a spreadsheet of 10 bids and hoping you have all the scope qualified, you know, there's, there's more to it than that. But good customers understand that they need relationships with their subs that go beyond, you know, just a, a contract. Yeah. And some of the contracts we get put in front of us today are terrible. I mean, they're one-sided deals to put all the risk back on subs. And, yep. you know, we try to stay away from those kind of those kind of customers. And we try to stay away from customers that don't want to help us out when it comes to payment time. To One of the biggest issues we fight is retainage. And retainage here in Texas is, is, is tough on a cash flow because 10% of our contract value gets held to the end of a project. Well, as a utility guy doing a big commercial job or a multifamily project, our money gets held for a year and a half, two years after we're, we're done with our work. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Why do they retain the money? As an insurance policy or just because that, they can? Yeah. I think the logic, I think it's twofold. I mean, the developer doesn't have to draw that much down on their, on their bank loan. Yeah. And most of these construction loans are set up with the banks, you know, requiring that retainage to, at the end. So it's, and then, you know, developers want to sit on that and they hold that as an insurance policy to make sure you come back and finish your work. Mm. The problem is that, you know, on a million dollar project, they may be holding a hundred thousand dollars to go finish $5,000 worth of work. Yeah. So as a new company getting started, that's been one of our biggest hurdles is, is just cash flow with retainage. And some of our best customers will, will help us with that issue. They'll understand our struggles and some just don't care. You know, it's not their problem. So. That's been a, a, the biggest challenge I've had. I didn't really understand that from my previous job because I didn't get involved in the financials. I didn't really understand cash flow, didn't understand taking care of vendors, didn't understand how any of that stuff worked. And I've had to learn all that the hard way. And I was just talking to someone about this yesterday too. In times like these, you really do get to see who's on your team and who's not, you know, who's just out to care about themselves. And, you know, that's just not our problem versus the people that are actually there like, Hey, you know, we know you're hurting, we're hurting. Let's, let's do this together. Let's figure this out. Let's try to figure out an arrangement that works for the both of us. But I mean, right now I've been talking to contractors across the country and and they, even some of them are surprised. Like, yeah, man, they, they, we've been, you know, they've told us they care for a year and and years now, but then, you know, all of a sudden they just turn their back on in in a few days. It's just been crazy. Yeah. I think 2008, from what I've been told, 2008 changed a lot of that, that there used to be some, handshake deals where people had your back through tough times and after a lot of people got burned in 2008 they've just they've really gone to just a you know a lot of our big vendors are just a corporate mentality of hey we don't we don't care you know pay us or or your your account shut off that kind of deal yeah so we do have some suppliers some equipment vendors smaller people that do work for us that would go out of their way to help us out and they have since day one and we're we're never going to forget those guys and they're going to always be doing our business and there's some that clearly don't really care you know we don't we're not going to forget that now on the fast growth and you kind of mentioned it in, in cash flow how is the fast growth a problem because i feel like people and we've grown real fast too and we've battled cash flow since day one how is it a problem growing four times faster than you thought you would what is a cash flow problem in the first place? What is what is cash flow? How does it impact a business? And why, you know, how can you outpace your cash? Can you explain that? Yeah. So that's all stuff I didn't understand getting started. The biggest indicator of that is retainage. Because let's say you know, our first year we did $22 million in revenue. Well, 10% of that is $2 million getting held up in retainage. That's cash that doesn't get paid to us on time. So yeah. the business has to come up with that cash to continue to pay payroll to continue to pay vendors to continue to pay everything associated with the business you know if i could go back and do it all over again i'd grow way slower when when people see our success in quotes they see us 
you know, getting a lot of projects that see us all over town. Uh, we do a good job of marketing, good job of uh, putting our logo on stuff, good job of putting trailers up. You know, people just assume we're just rolling in it, and they're, they're they're congratulating us on our growth. And I'm sitting there shaking my head on the other side, going, "Man, I wish I hadn't grown." You know, this it's it hasn't been all sunshine and rainbows. It's been it's been tough. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd grow a lot slower. Mm. But it doesn't do any good worrying about what you did yesterday. We're we just really learned our lesson. We've really started to establish processes and that's something else too when you're growing fast you don't have time to put in processes you're just getting the next job you're hiring people you know you're hiring superintendents superintendents probably been the toughest position for us to hire we've had a lot of bad ones and a bad superintendent will cost you money way longer than how long they're employed with you i mean Mm -hmm. they will cause you headaches a year after they're gone and the team we've got now is just out of this world and it's because we've gone through all the bad apples Mm. and it's taken three or four years to really put together a team of people that are that are trustworthy that care that really want this business to succeed so when you go through you know hyper growth mode you can't do all that all at once and so growth it looks great you know but on paper it's tough and in reality it's really tough well, and yeah, even, I'm sure that the Keaton Turners and those guys will tell you the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I have conversations about this with, with everybody. And I, I mean, maybe 18 months ago, I, I had no idea what cash flow was until the business, you know, our business started to run out of money. And the thing is, we've had no external financing whatsoever. So we just had to get creative with you guys. The developers are holding up 10% of your money, but you still need to make payroll every week. It's not like you can just go to your pipe layers and say, Hey guys, you know, the developers held up some money so we can't get your paycheck this week. That wouldn't go over very well. So that whole responsibility and stress is on you at the top to figure that out and, you know, make sure everyone underneath you is, is taken care of and all your vendors and suppliers, everyone's taken care of before you ever see a dollar. Is that right? I mean, you're, you're the last in line. Yeah. Fundamentally, we are a bank at certain points because we are paying for pipe that somebody else is the end user, whether it's a municipality, whether it's a developer, somebody else is the end user of that pipe. Mm-hmm. It's not our pipe, but we have to pay for it and then wait to get paid later on. Mm. So we're getting paid in 90 cent dollars and, and have to pay for all of our stuff in full dollars. It, it can be tough and it's not something that I understood getting started and it's, it's critical to business in, in the construction industry, especially here in Texas. Yeah. Well, and I, I think owners too have like the contracts have just gotten worse and worse and worse over the past decade. And some of them are just like, are so one-sided it's a joke. And that's because they've been able to do that. I mean, contractors have just rolled over and said, okay, yeah, sure. We'll sign it. We just need the work or we just want the work. We're not going to sit here and be disciplined enough to say, Hey, no. I mean, have you, have you guys had to turn work down for that reason? Just because, you know, Hey, we just, we don't feel comfortable with this. Man, we've gotten a lot better at it. Getting started, I didn't really review the contracts as in-depth as I should have. I didn't spend the legal resources to, to look at them. I didn't vet customers well enough. So early on, we were signing contracts that, that were bad. We've been pretty lucky that you know we haven't had any major issues come up other than having to fight for payment here and there or argue about a change order. But some of these contracts have language in there that's, that's absolutely crazy. So utilizing a good construction attorney, utilizing a good bonding agent, utilizing good insurance people, having those resources to help us out through those, to review our contracts for us, to help us to watch out for bad customers, and then doing a better job of of asking people in the industry about these customers and getting feedback on who's worked with them before. You know, we're members of ASA, and ASA is really good about sharing that information and and talking to other subs and trying to create the, the biggest network we can of good people. Mm. Because those people will, will warn you and keep you away from, from bad people that have terrible reputations. Early on, we got in three or four projects with a, one of the worst developers in DFW. And they've got a terrible reputation. And if I had known and done more research, I would have known that going into it. We lost a ton of money on their projects. And to this day, I'm still waiting on our last payment. We haven't done a job for them in two years. So there's just so much, you know, I wish I could have learned before I got started, but my wife always makes fun of me. She's like, I don't think if you knew all this stuff that you would have still done it. No. I think she's probably right. Oh, that's a common theme with any business owner. I mean, the people that try to come up with the perfect plan and try to figure out every single liability before they execute it are the ones that never execute. The ones that just kind of dig in like, well, 
we'll just figure it out as we go. They're the only ones that have really changed the world. I mean, that's just a common theme with anyone that's done anything is just, let's just do it and learn as we go. And I guess that's another point too. People think like, well, they didn't pay you. Well, just go sue them. It's like, well, that's just not how this really works. And even, even if I wanted to sue them, do I really want to spend the six, 12 months of stress, anxiety, legal fees to go chase money that's owed to me? It's just like, it doesn't always work that way either, which I feel like people don't understand. No, it's not that easy. I mean, we protect our money with lien rights and, and all that, but you know, we really haven't, luckily we really haven't had to get into any lengthy lawsuits chasing our money, but who knows what's going to happen in this upcoming economy. So that's the not fun part of the business is worrying about if you're going to get paid. It's tough. Now I know, I know you guys have been figuring this out, you know, real fast growth. It's just been, and been nuts in the past six months, even before, you know, the whole coronavirus thing was wild for you guys. How has the, the mental aspect of this been? There's probably been some times where you're just like, why the hell am I doing this? I mean, how have you stayed grounded mentally through all of this over the past six months? Man, you know, you, you see online those memes about being an entrepreneur that kind of have the up and down of the day. Like, oh, I'm awesome. Oh, this sucks. Oh, I'm, we're doing better. Oh, we're going out of business. Yeah. I would laugh at those because they're they're all too realistic. Yeah. And I think getting started in 2017 in the hyper growth mode, we were kind of naive and well, I was pretty happy. I thought we were doing great. I thought we were killing it. In, in May of 18, our CFO at the time ended up leaving the company because six months early he was diagnosed with ALS Mm. and that was really, really tough and a wake up call for us. So after that point, you know, we really struggled mentally. It was, uh, 2018 was also the second wettest year on record in DFW. So you talk about a year of struggle and a year of just trying to make it work and just make it bad people and all that just weighed on me. I mean, I, I think since starting this business, I've gained and lost 40 pounds three or four times. And it just gets, it gets stressful. It gets overwhelming. You, you know, you get people that tell you that they, they are behind you, that they believe in you and you trust them. And then you, there's people that end up stabbing you in the back. And, and that's the toughest part is when you're dealing with people that don't tell you the truth and don't really have your back. So yeah. learning that midway through last year, actually through talking with you guys and, and us going to Nashville with you guys, you guys got me listening to Andy Frisella and the MFCEO project and, I did 75 hard last year, September into November, and really just started working on my mental toughness, working on myself, putting myself first, working out every morning, no matter what, you know, taking time to myself, you know, it's really helped. And it's really made me focus and figure out who I am and know that I'm giving this thing my all. And and every day I come in and just do the best I can and do it for my family and just take it one step at a time and realize I can't conquer the world I've got a hundred problems out there and I can't tackle all of them at once, but just having faith that it's going to work out that same mindset. And then realizing that I have to step up and work harder. You know, all that's this coronavirus stuff hasn't phased me near as much as it, it probably should have. If I hadn't gone through those things and realized that, you know, ultimate control is not within my power and that I have faith. We're going to get through it all. Yeah. Now let's get into how you guys treat your people better and your philosophy on training and safety and, you know, DFW market is very competitive. I worked in Fort Worth in the utilities world for four months. I was supposed to be a few years, but I've seen it firsthand and not the companies I worked with, but you get to hear a lot about the market and people are treated just horribly in the DFW market. I mean, they are just dogs and, and totally disposable and, a lot of the contractors, you know, if we need more, we'll just go get them, you know, whenever. How do you guys treat your people differently and why is that important? Man, that's always been a um, something that bothered me about this industry was that construction market here in Texas, the workforce is mainly Hispanic in the field. And some, there's companies out there that just treat their people like they're a, they're cattle or they're a, they're just a, a machine. They're dispensable. They're, you can, you can work them to death and just or that they only deserve to get cheap wage as cheap as they can get them. I've just always cared about people a lot. And everybody that's worked for us, we care about all of our employees a lot. And we, we started, we opened our doors with a safety consultant to design a full safety program. You know, that was probably an expense up front that we didn't need to have. We probably could have winged it a little bit. But we wanted our people to be safe because I never want to go have to have a talk with somebody's wife that, that 
they got hurt or, or worse on our job site yeah. because we didn't put them in a safe environment. So safety, number one. And then just wanted people to get paid well and not have to work 80 hours to get paid well. I mean, there were, I've worked at some companies that they want to pay low wages, but then they, they, the excuse is they let the guys work as many hours as they want. Yep. So to make a living, the guy has to work six or seven 12-hour shifts in a week and, and can't see his family. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And the guys are going to be worn out and miserable. So we try to, we take a lot of pride in our team, our, 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 our superintendents, our project managers, all being, you know, team players. We, we spend a lot of time with each other outside the office. We get to know our team. You know, these people are, are family. And, and a lot of people say that and they say that their employees are family and they don't mean it. That's just a, a buzzword to them. And to us, it's not. Now, how, you know, investing in your people and working, you know, normal hours rather than just working the hell out of people and this and that with such tight margins, because the margins are pretty tight in the utilities world, how do you stay competitive? Well, it's mainly just when you have good people and you train them and you trust in them, they're going to help you make better margins. Yeah. You know, if you have people that care about their projects and, and superintendents that care, foremen that care about their job, they're getting more out of their time. They're doing stuff smarter. They're using less material. They're using less labor. We really watch our, our labor and, and try to have crew sizes that are lean to not have that extra labor cost. So the, the guys on the crew are getting it done with less less overall people because they're, they're better. Mm-hmm. And when they're not out there wasting time, and it, if they feel like the company is screwing them and, and not caring about them, they're more likely to, to try to do it back. So... You know, when you have an overall culture of taking care of people, of doing the right thing, I think everybody believes in that. Everybody gets on board, and, and you see it in the work out in the field, and you see it in the office, and you see it how people care about the, our customers' projects and how they interact with our customers. The amazing thing is a lot of companies, they just play victim, and they they expect their people to work hard and do everything for them and, and take care of the business and take care of the customers before the company takes care of them. And then when they leave, they accuse them of not being loyal and this and that. And it's, it's the biggest joke in the world because it's like the company needs to lead their people. You should be taking care of your people before you should expect anything in return from them. That's extraordinary. Definitely. And a lot of people think that taking care of your people just means giving them a big bonus or something. Yes. And there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, it's not about just tossing money at people. It's about showing them respect showing them that you care. You know, we, we like to do employee events. We like to get the guys out. You know, we got all the, all the foremen and operators. Last September, we all went out and went bowling and did a safety training the day of and let them all go bowling and hang out all afternoon with us. You know, stuff like that, getting parties together. And some companies do big Christmas parties, and I think that's all that there is, a big Christmas party and hand out bonuses. And I think that they're, they're not understanding their field employees. And there's a reason why we've been able to grow as fast as we have you know, everybody's like, man, how'd you find all those people? And people have just been over the late years been flocking to us because they talk to their friends that work here and their friends tell them how good it is. You know, we've had people beg us to come work over here and that's how we've been able to add to our team with it in such a competitive labor market is that people enjoy working over here. And mm. you can feel it when you come over here and talk to our people and, and you can feel that they like it. Yeah, it is funny how they... I guess you said it just perfectly. Companies think that, yeah, throwing a Christmas party once a year and a big bonus at the end of the year is culture. Like, yeah, we have a great culture. You know, we have a Christmas party every year and we give our guys bonuses and this and that. And you're just looking at them. You're like, what? you're delusional. You have no idea what culture is. That's not, that, that doesn't even make sense. It's, it's, and, and frankly, that's what everyone else does. So, okay, great. You're the bare minimum. You do what everyone else does. How, how is that any, how is that? To me, as a potential employee, how is that exciting? Why would why would you throw in a Christmas party once a year be the reason why I come work for you? That's not what motivates people. You know, these owners will sit there and, and brag about it, and it's just, it's always confused me, especially in this industry, because it's just like, okay, everyone does that. It's not that it's not that special, right? It's 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 the small things you do every day that add up a lot more than that. Yep. Now, how how does customer service matter? in the utilities world. And you touched on it before saying, you know, people think you guys are a commodity and we just put a video together for you guys. And and you said, you know, safety first and customer service second. And I think that's a novel concept in, in construction and utilities as far as customer service goes and and really taking care of the customer. I mean, that's obvious, always been talked about in retail and restaurants and this and that, but 
construction that's that's never never really talked about and a lot of the projects I've been on it's like the customer is almost the enemy why is customer service so important and why do you try to ingrain that in your leaders out in the field because you know customer service in our industry is really tough I mean most of our customers are general contractors or they're developers and they have they they have strict schedules they need you there when you say you're going to be there. They need you to do what you say you're going to do. Because as a utilities contractor, we're almost always critical path. Yep. We're almost always, all of our stuff usually has to be in and tested before these guys can go vertical on their buildings. I mean, there's not a schedule out there that doesn't have utilities as critical path. So they're relying on us early and up front, us and the dirt contractor and the concrete guy to get done and get out of there so they can go. And it's a struggle in our world because we're so dependent on weather that sometimes we get, it's hard to manage our schedule. It's so hard because, you know, if we're scheduled to start a project on a certain date, the customer doesn't realize that there were five rain days the week before on a different project. It's only in their project too, even though we weren't there yet. Or we get told a project starting in two weeks. Well, come to find out they didn't get their permits. They don't have their bank loan closed. They don't, so that gets delayed six weeks. Well, hey, guess what? That just messed up our schedule. So our schedule I mean, you can ask our superintendents. We meet on our schedule every Friday, and we keep it all up on the cloud. And by the time we leave that meeting on Friday, it's already changed. Mm. That's how fluid our, our dynamic is. So customer service comes down to communicating with our customers when they need something that's critical, doing everything we can to get there, not telling them, hey, it'll be six weeks. Doing what we can every day, and they see that effort, that's all they care about. If they think that you're just putting them off and that you don't care about their projects, that's when the issues arise. So I think most people are just looking for, you know, other people to care and to really want their project to succeed. I know I've said that a couple of times, but at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want our customers to go out and make as much money as they can because it's going to trickle down. And it's all about relationships. How, so do, how you, do you differentiate yourself from 10 other competitors? It's about relationships. How do you instill that into your foreman in the field though? Because, you know, you, you, you can't touch every project. You're, and you guys are so spread out now and, and you're not interacting with the owners a lot of times because the, the company's grown way beyond you. How do you instill that sense of importance and, and urgency and customer service in foreman that you might not even know all that well since you guys are that size now? That's really tough because the, the foreman, you know, don't interact at the same level that the superintendents do. Yeah. But we have foremen out there that we have customers request certain foremen. I mean, the foremen start building the relationship with that customer superintendent or, or, or their team. So we try to, you know, we've done three or four hospital projects for a certain general contractor and they request a certain superintendent every time. And, and, and sometimes they request a certain foreman every time. So letting our guys build those relationships of their own. Uh, we encourage our PMs and, and supers to, to build their own relationships, go to the job trailer, say hi to these guys, get to know everybody. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody should be on the same team all the subs should be on the same team. We want to work well with the other subs that are on site with us. We want mm-hmm. to be partners with them. Yep. That means you're not, you're not ba- that means not backcharging them for ridiculous stuff or, or trying to fight with them over grade. So all that just just comes down from us and and trying to do the best job we can out there every day. Hmm. I guess the foremen that are requested, what makes them great? I mean, what makes them sought after? What what do they do every day that that makes them above the rest? They really try to work with the general contractor as close as they can. They, they do quality work. They communicate everything we've already talked about. They make the project their own. Mm. And when you give people, when you kind of empower them to make that project their own, you know, it allows that foreman to communicate with the, the general contractor and make their own schedule, tell them what's going on that day. If the GC needs them to move to something else because they're in the way, you know, working with them, not arguing over, over small stuff and just doing doing the, the best of what our customer needs to work into their schedule. Not only worry about our schedule, but worry about theirs. Mm. And you have to give them that ability to, to make the decisions though. Cause I, I don't think that's common in the construction world. I think in the construction world, the foreman is in charge of what's right in front of them. And then they're not given any other responsibility beyond that. And then on top of them is the superintendent. And then, so the foreman talks to the superintendent, the superintendent talks to whoever's on site with the owner. And then, you know, superintendent talks to the PM, the PM talks with the owner and, and it just goes up the chain of command. Whereas you guys, it sounds like it's somewhat decentralized. Like, Hey, we want the foreman to own the job. 
and form their own relationship and we don't need to be involved. It depends on the, on the personnel there. I mean, there are some that the superintendent is more the one communicating with the customer, Yeah, but it needs to, the, the perfect world would be that the foreman would do that. Our superintendents, we also try to only have our superintendents watch a few projects at once, you know, three or four. There's a lot of our competitors that have a superintendent spread out among eight crews or eight different projects and they might get by a job once a week. You know, our, our superintendents should be by there every day or every other day mm. and really getting to know the project team, but still being able to lead that foreman that's a really high quality foreman to make decisions on his own, does not have to rely on superintendent or project manager to make every little decision. It's huge. And it saves us time. It saves us money. It saves, it, it builds a relationship with the customer. I mean, it does all of it. Yeah. Now switching gears a little bit to family, you're young in your thirties. You have a young family. Uh, how many, how many little kids do you have? Two or three? We've got two and the third one is coming in about a month. That's right. Yeah. So you got, I mean, a growing family, a real young family. How have you been able to balance having little kids at home versus, you know, stressing about meeting cash flow and payroll next week? Uh, the short answer is just having an amazing wife. Yeah. But there's a lot. It's been tough. My son was born one year to the day after we, we filed our papers to start this business. Uh-huh. So it was tough. And, and originally we had him and my wife was still working. And there was an incident when he was really young where he actually stopped breathing in the middle of a target. And paramedics had to come and take him to the hospital. And after that, my wife decided, hey, I, I don't want to work. I want to be home with him and, and always be there for him. And wow. since then, she stayed at home with the kids, and we make it work. And there's a lot of sacrifice on both parts. You know, there's her understanding some of the hours that I work. I come home, and, and I, tr- I try to really balance my time with the family. I try to be home at 5 o'clock every day and, and hang out with the family until it's bedtime for the kids. And then if I need to do some work after that on the computer for a couple hours a night, that's fine with her. But you really prioritizing family and balance. And, and people say that a lot, but sometimes they, they put their, their business and their, and their work ahead of their family, and it needs to be the other. It's tougher than it sounds. It's something that takes practice all the time. It's something that's always changing. But at the end of the day, my family is always going to be number one. And this, this business does not go above family. It's super important to me, and I sacrifice for it. But, you know, my family will always be there for me, whether this business is here or not. Yeah. I mean, do you try to keep them separate? Because they are intertwined. I think it's impossible to create, quote unquote, work-life balance, especially as an owner of a company. Do you try to keep a separation there? Or how does that look? It's hard. I mean, my wife is pretty involved in a lot of the decisions because I, I talk to her. She's the one I talk to about everything. She helps me. I mean, she doesn't make day-to-day business decisions, but she helps me with the big stuff and the stuff that you want and the stuff to think about. She's yep. always got my back when it comes to doing what I think is right and taking care of people and doing the right thing. I mean, she's always been there for me. So it's hard to separate business and family completely. And, you know, we've got a, I've got my cousin that works for us as an estimator, John, and he's the only other family, you know, working here right now. And he's absolutely fantastic. It's been, been awesome. Moss has always been a family business and a lot of people think that being a family business means you have a ton of family working together. And that's not always the case. It's, Family is a, is a big, big word that means treating everybody around you that like they're your family mm-hmm. and intertwining it with your family. And we get to know the families of all of our employees and hang out with them. You know, it all goes together. There is no work-life balance to me. It's all, it's all one big, it's just life. Yeah. Well, we are approaching an hour here. I told you I'd give you, give you the warning. It, hours go quick when I'm doing this. I mean, I could... I could talk right. for I, it, time moves really fast. Uh, is there is there anything else you wanted to touch on or anything you're thinking about right now with all the COVID stuff or any any last last remarks you wanted to make? Man, the COVID stuff is is, is tough. I know you spent a lot of time on that in some of your other episodes. There's a lot going on. That the one reassuring thing to me is that we're all in this together. Yeah, I don't think anybody has all the answers, and I think we're we're all going to get through it, and hopefully we all use it as a way to get stronger and better. You know, if you can look for the positive in everything and, and use it to your advantage and make your company better, then, you know, that's how you get through it. So I think we're all going to be, I think everything's going to be fine. We just all need to tighten up and, and really work together to get through this. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, as a business owner, I'm scared shitless right now, but at the same time, it's, I've never been more excited 
And I talked to, you know, Dylan Stevens about this the other day and he agreed with me. He's like, man, I've, I've, this is the most excited I've ever been running my company because there are so many opportunities out there. It's challenging my, my mindset. It's showing me what problems I had in my business. It's, you know, proving that times are not always good. You know, I got fooled into thinking everything, you know, the trees grew to the sky and that's just not the case. It's an awesome, I mean, it's terrible what's going on, but it's also a great thought exercise as a, as a business owner. And, you know, how do I keep providing for my people even when things are not going to plan, you know, how do I make sure their paychecks are there? And yeah, the virus is, you know, a threat to people, but so is their inability to buy groceries for their family and pay their power bill and pay their mortgage and provide the basic needs for their families. So it's that balance of protect your people, do the right thing versus, you know, making sure they also have a paycheck. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a fascinating philosophical discussion that's going on in my head right now. Yeah, it's a real test of, of leadership. It's one thing to talk about being a leader. It's one thing to you know say all the right things, but when when push comes to shove, you know, you're going to see leaders in this time step up and, and and really show who they really are. I'm taking notes right now. You know who the who the people are that that are really leading, and and not just business owners, just people in general. You know, vendors and and anyone in my life who's who's really stepping up right now. I'm definitely you know taking a mental note. Like, man, I I. I want them on my team or, or I, you know, I want to help them out more. And, and it's, it's so fascinating how fast you can really see people's motives in some, in, in a time like this. Yeah. And I wonder how many of us are going to look back at this time, you know, this really tough time where I'm going to go through and say, Hey, that's the time that, that really defined me, that defined me, my business, that, that let me grow, that that's the time that changed everything. Yep. I mean, this, this time right now could be, it's changing people's lives for the better and they don't even realize it. Yeah. That's my goal. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for thanks for giving us a giving us an hour to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, I think it's fascinating. I think you know, growing businesses is fascinating, even if no one listened to this podcast. I I love doing this and learning learning more and more about business from other people that have are a little further down the road than I am. So I appreciate you just sharing uh, everything so far. Oh, no problem, man. I don't think we're very much further down the road than you guys, but it's been fun so far, and we love watching what you guys are doing, and love that you're. You're part of our business and part of our partnership, and you guys bring us value every day. So we appreciate you. That's the goal. All right. Well, we'll wrap up here. I appreciate everyone giving this a listen. If you found it valuable, found anything from this conversation in a value, if you enjoyed it, please share it with someone else that you think would enjoy it. No plans to make any money on this podcast. It takes up a lot of time. I spent a lot of money on it with no dollars coming from it. So if nothing else, just please share it with other people and help grow it. And hopefully we can make an impact that way. So thanks, Garrett. Thank you.